This is Meeting in Middle America, our podcast looking at trends and ideas in the Midwest that matter to the nation. I'm your host, Stephen Olikara, and today is our special pandemic edition of the podcast. That's right. We are not in our usual taping location at the Lubar Entrepreneurship Center at the UW-Milwaukee campus. We are here at home, and I hope you are staying home as well. On the pod today, we're talking about the impact of the pandemic on Wisconsin's elections and the DNC this summer, and we have the perfect person to break down Wisconsin politics. He is one of my favorite political reporters in the country and the Washington bureau chief of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the largest newspaper in Wisconsin, Craig Gilbert. Craig, thanks for being on the show. Hey, it's nice to be with you. Really appreciate it. Well, as you know, I've been a huge fan of your reporting over the years. I first started following your work when you did a series of reports on polarization in Wisconsin. But let's start with the pressing issue in front of us right now, and that is Wisconsin's April 7th primary election. And we've had some recent news coming out uh, in in the recent uh, weeks. Uh, One, a federal judge has extended online voter registration to allow for more absentee ballots to be requested. There have been issues around the photo identification process, and now it looks like county clerks are telling people, at least in Milwaukee and Dane counties, that they can skip uh, providing a photo identification, all while the governor is facing increasing pressure to postpone the election. So let me phrase it this way for you, Craig. Are we going to have an election on April 7th? I think if it's up to the key policymakers, we will, but uh, if a judge decides otherwise, we may not. I mean, there's been an explosion of lawsuits, and so it would just take a court saying, no, uh, you can't do it under these circumstances to change all that. But it's not going to, but, you know, the, the governor, the Democratic governor and the Republican legislature have been pretty firm about wanting to have the election. There's pros and cons, obviously. There's trade-offs. Um, and everybody agrees. I think everybody understands that this is not an election that's going to be conducted under ideal circumstances. I mean, the big picture is that Wisconsin's trying to essentially convert from a traditional voting state to a mail, a vote by mail state overnight. I mean, uh, you know, in real time amid this pandemic. And so hundreds of thousands of voters have requested absentee ballots, which is in some ways, an argument for going ahead with the election because people are showing that they are willing to vote by mail, and you could—they're showing that at this rate, you could probably at least sort of approximate a normal April turnout from uh, mail ballots. Um, but that places a huge amount of stress on a system that's not used to mail voting, and mail voting has never been a big part of the system in Wisconsin. Has never been even 10% of the vote in Wisconsin. So you're going to have all these local clerks having to process all these absentee ballots and then count them, and that's asking a lot. Yeah, and is your sense that the mail-in ballot system in Wisconsin is prepared to scale up to this new level? It looks like, based on some of the early data we've been seeing, the number of absentee ballots requested is just astronomically high uh, compared to prior elections. Do you feel like the election system, the administrators are, are prepared for this? I think it's going to be really stressed by this. I mean, basically, you know, in the April election a year ago, I think there was, by my count, there was something like, there were fewer than 70,000 mail ballots out of 1.2 million votes cast. That's like 5 or 6%. And if you go back to the November midterms, which is a much bigger election, 2.7 million people voting, only about 107, less than 170,000 mail ballots, which is also 5 or 6%. Now we've had 
700,000 requests for absentee ballots, and this is includes some in-person early voters, but it's it's overwhelmingly requests for mail-in ballots, and and that's all exploded in the last two weeks. I mean, it was a week and a half ago, it was it was like 130,000, and then it's just crept up and up and up, and now it's 700,000. So that is a lot, and those are the those are the requests. So people request the ballot, then they have to fill it out. They have to follow the rules in filling it out. Then they have to return it, and then the clerks have to collect them. And then, and again, when it comes to counting them, um, that's going to be a big challenge because you can't count them as quickly as you could count in-person votes. So um, it raises all sorts of issues. It raises issues of fairness too, because you know some people, some types of voters may not adapt as quickly to mail voting as others. But it's going to be a stress on the system, no doubt. I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of like a beautiful civic outpouring to me that so many people have, are taking the step to avoid, you know, the public health risk of voting in person, and they want to still want to vote, and so they're doing this, and it's unprecedented. On the other side, it does place a lot of stress on the system, and there are, there are legitimate debates about the fairness of the election, and that's what um, you know, those are the debates that we're seeing play out. Right, right. Now, the governor has been getting a lot of pressure from groups to potentially postpone the election. And you've been making the point that it's more complicated than what it is for other states because you have a number of general election races on the ballot, including Supreme Court, uh, Milwaukee County Executive, Milwaukee Mayor. And how does that impact the politics and, and the ultimate decision of whether or not to postpone when you have these fixed term races uh, or or offices on the ballot? Yeah, so it complicates it. I mean, a lot of the other states we've seen postpone their presidential primaries. In some cases, these aren't government-run primaries. They're party-run primaries. In some cases, they're just presidential primaries and nothing else. Um, But a primary is easier to postpone than a general election. Um, and and these this is a general election that's mandated by state law. It's in it's in the statutes, and these are offices that have a that have a finite term. So you delay the election, you delay the you know the taking office of the of the of the winners of the election, and so that's that complicates it a lot. And and so Wisconsin's been in a little different place than than all these other states we've seen push off their presidential primaries. Um, it kind of has the presidential primary field to this to itself, and that's one of the perverse byproducts of this. Uh, in a race, it's kind of lost its luster a little bit. I mean, you know, J- Joe Biden is the clear front runner, so it's not like the Wisconsin presidential primary would have the cachet that it would if this were still a wide open race. But if this were still a wide open race, I mean, it would be total chaos when you combine. You know, when you combine that with trying to conduct an election in a pandemic, um, and you and the and the Democratic race, the race for the Democratic nomination is wide open, um, then it just that would be uh, e- create even more uncertainty and chaos than we have now. Right. Yeah. And now some of the news coming out of Wisconsin related to the lawsuits have been fascinating to watch. We saw the DNC and the Democratic Party sue the state to make various adjustments to the absentee voting process and the registration process. So for everyone who's tuning in right now and heard something about that, what actually is the lawsuit 
and what are both sides trying to get out of it and what have been the results so far? So there's, there's a bunch of lawsuits now. They're kind of, you know, yeah. they're, like I said, they're expanding <laughs> daily. But the Democratic Party filed a lawsuit to, re- to liberalize some of the voting rules, you know, arguing that this is, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, we're, we're trying to basically become a vote-by-mail election overnight, and so people need more time. Um, and it is time-consuming, and it's a multi-step process. I mean, in states that have already kind of converted to mail systems, like Colorado and Washington State, I mean, they've got it down. They've they've adapted over over a period of years. You know, you get in many states that do this, it's automatic that you're sent a a form, uh, you know, a request form for an absentee ballot. You don't have to ask for one, and. Um, and it's a more streamlined process, that the, you know, in, in, on lots of levels. But mail can be cumbersome. You know, it can generate more mistakes than other kinds of voting. You have to find a way to process those and deal with those. Again, like I mentioned earlier, it can be harder to count. Um, and Wisconsin law, you know, the voter ID law, um, when it comes to mail voting, means if you have, this is the first time you're requesting an absentee ballot, you have to prove your ID. And so that, that means either taking your ID into, into the local clerk's office or uploading it um, and sending it in that way or sending it in by, you know, email or mail. Um, and so there, these lawsuits get to, you know, they, one of them successfully got a judge to push back the deadline for online registration because you have to be registered in order to request and execute a mail ballot. Right. And so that deadline has been pushed back. Um, but they also want to push back the deadline for when you have to send in or when the clerks have to receive a mail ballot. And so all these things are being disputed and being litigated. Other people are, you know, are just suing to get the election postponed, um, you know, because they think that, you know, that there's the public health risk of in-person voting, which hasn't been prohibited yet. And, um, and they think that, you know, you have to give voters more time if if we're going to go to mail, and and then you know the Republican Party uh, is intervening to because it's contesting um, the idea of a postponing the election and b liberalizing these rules under these circumstances. So this is against the backdrop of years of litigation over Wisconsin's election system and over things like the voter ID law, and now it's just kind of taking a different form because of the really extraordinary circumstances we're in with trying to conduct an election in a pandemic. Right, right. And this whole issue of mail-in ballots is uh, a topic that my organization, which I know you're familiar with, Craig Millennial Action Project, has been working to build a bipartisan case for. But when you look at it in Wisconsin, it has become so polarized. And is it apparent to you, Craig, that one side would get a partisan advantage over the other for either extending the period of online voter registration or extending the time in which absentee ballots are counted. Some of these issues that are being brought up in the courts, they're they're being framed in a partisan way, but is there an obvious uh, partisan advantage one way or another from your standpoint? I don't really think so. I also think there's no obvious partisan advantage to, to going to mail, generally speaking. Um, right. And you can argue it in different ways. I mean, you know, you could argue that, um, you know, mail, I mean, there is some, you know, there's been some skepticism on the Republican side about mail voting, but you could argue that, 
you know, older voters are more adaptable to mail voting than younger voters, and that's, you know, and older voters tend to be more Republican. Um, we've seen in the early data on where these votes are coming from in Wisconsin that, yeah, a disproportionate share of the, of the requests for absentee ballots have come from Dane and Milwaukee counties, which are obviously Democratic bastions. But, but when, it, when you look at who's actually returning, who's getting the ballots and returning them, um, uh, you know, then Waukesha has actually returned more ballots than either of those two counties, which is a, a part of the, you know, which is the, the geographic, the Republican base county. So right. it's not obvious to me that these things advantage one side or the other when it comes to mail, but, but you know, again, some of this is kind of a carryover from the way these issues have been litigated you know, in the overall voting system in the past. And so um, what we find, you know, what I found is that, you know, there's a reason why, you know, Democrats and Republicans take the positions they do. Um, most parties aren't going to advocate for election procedures that they think are going to hurt their own side. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I don't think it's always apparent that, um you know, which side the rules advantage. In some cases, it is apparent, um, but in other cases, it isn't. And so it can be a little confusing to try to sort that out uh, when it comes to some of these questions. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, in recent days, one of the most frequent questions I've been getting as a Wisconsinite is, what's going to happen to the Democratic convention this July in Milwaukee? And you're starting to see various statements from the governor and the mayor and the the Democratic National Committee. Milwaukee as a city clearly has been looking forward to this as a major boost to the local economy, but now you're seeing some reports about potential contingency options. So what's your take, Craig, on the politics and the decision-making around the Democratic Convention and whether you think it's going to happen? Well, the big shoe that dropped on Monday was that the convention organizers for the first time acknowledged that they are exploring contingencies, um, which was just a polite way of saying, hey, you know, um, the landscape has changed. Um, You know, we're living in a new world and we have to figure out, you know, how to deal with this. And they're not saying the convention is not going to happen. They're not saying it's going to happen, but it's going to be virtual. But they're acknowledging that that all these things are probably on the table, um, mm-hmm. and um, you know everybody wants you know everybody who's associated with this just is dying to forge ahead with a Milwaukee convention. Um, they don't know whether they're going to be able to do that or not. And when I started talking to, I didn't talk to a lot, but when I started when I talked to a handful of DNC members, these are members of the Democratic National Committee from other states. You know they, you know it was like they would they were not. They're not going to be surprised at all um, if if we do not have as planned an in-person, you know, normal traditional Democratic convention in Milwaukee. When Joe Biden, the presumptive nominee, was asked this question on CNN on Tuesday, he was asked, "Do you think the in-person traditional Democratic convention in mid-July in Milwaukee should be canceled?" He said, "No," um, but he also said, "You know, it's going to depend on the state of the nation." at that time. So we don't know, but we know that we know how fast the world has changed in a short time. Mm-hmm. And, and unless in the relatively near future, there are a lot of positive trends 
with respect to the pandemic, it's going to be very difficult to envision a, anything like a normal convention in Milwaukee. That's right. Now, whether the convention happens or not, whether the convention happens in person or not, in uh, July, the choice to bring the convention to Milwaukee was a major statement about the role of Wisconsin in national politics. And I would love to dive into that topic a bit with you, Craig. One of the things I love about your reporting is when the nation and sometimes the world is curious what is going on in Wisconsin politics, they look to you to explain what's going on. And as Wisconsin has increasingly risen in national importance, um, you've, you've played that crucial role uh, to a very large uh, audience of people. And so I want to dive into that because as we look ahead to the, Nash, the November general election, We've seen the New York Times and other national outlets call Wisconsin the tipping point state for the 2020 election. So from your standpoint, Craig, as the person who's had to explain this to so many people, why has Wisconsin become so important to the national conversation and the, out, the, the trends in national politics? So it starts with the fact that, you know, we've been a purple state for a long time, and we've been a presidential battleground before, and, you know, three of our last five presidential contests have been decided by less than a percentage point. Um, other states have been battlegrounds, but, and, and some of those states, you know, have faded out of battleground status because they've shifted in a blue direction or shifted in a red direction. In Wisconsin, it just so happens, you know, for reasons that are probably somewhat random, that um, while regions of Wisconsin have moved toward the Republican Party and other regions have moved toward the Democratic Party, these trends have been offsetting each other largely. And, um, and so Wisconsin has remained, you know, uh, pretty close to the middle in that respect in its voting behavior. Um, and then with the Trump election, um, you know, uh, a state that, if anything, you know, that had voted seven times in a row for Democratic nominees, um, albeit sometimes by very narrow margins, with the Trump election, his demographic strengths kind of played to the demographic profile of Wisconsin. I mean, this is a, among all the battlegrounds, it's, it's, it is pretty much the most white-blue-collar state on that list um, of key battlegrounds. Uh, that means that more than half of the voters are what people call non-college whites, they're, they're white, and it's a very white state, but it's also kind of a blue-collar state. And we've seen this education divide creep into our politics that has been amplified by, by the Trump era. That means that, you know, if you're a non-college white, you're more likely to be um, supportive of President Trump and more likely to be Republican. And that, is, that has happened over time. And we've seen it in Wisconsin. We've seen it in, in the polling. We've seen it in the voting behavior. So that has, you know, if, if Wisconsin was you know, a pretty good state for Barack Obama and was actually a better state. He overperformed in Wisconsin his two elections. He was popular in Wisconsin. But with Trump, you know, Wisconsin came back to being kind of on that 50-yard line, if not a little bit in a Republican direction. And so there we are. Um, the, the, the electoral logic for Wisconsin's importance is pretty simple, and that is, you know, there were three states that tipped the election to Donald Trump in 2016. The so-called blue wall states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin had been voting Democratic, voted by narrow margins for Donald Trump, 
if nothing else changes on the map and Democrats win back those three states, they win the Electoral College. Of the three, most people view Wisconsin as the toughest one, the toughest not to crack for Democrats, even though it did have that history of voting Democratic, um, because of its demographics, which I mentioned, and because of some of its recent uh, you know, kind of voting patterns and recent elections. Um, Pennsylvania and Michigan are seen as kind of easier for the Democrats to win back. If they win those two, then, and nothing else changes, then bingo, Wisconsin is your tipping point state. Right. There you go. <laughs> and people keep wondering, um, you know, what are some of the underlying forces that are shifting Wisconsin's politics, especially since that infamous 2016 election where Wisconsin gave Trump that victory and whether those things are continuing or changing as we approach the 2020 November election. And, you know, one topic you and I've talked about, Craig, is some of these narratives that have emerged in Wisconsin and, and, and curious to get your take on, on which of these forces might be more salient in, in this November election. You know, one is the idea that Wisconsin is part of this, Midwestern moderate group of states and Amy Klobuchar and, and Pete Buttigieg kind of amplified that narrative generally with, with the Midwest uh, the idea that people who are ideologically too extreme won't resonate in, in a state like Wisconsin. But then on the flip side, Craig, you've done the best reporting to understand the so-called Obama Trump voters, voters who supported Obama twice and then switched to Trump in 16. And Wisconsin has one of, if not the highest, you know, concentrations of those types of voters, particularly in southwestern Wisconsin. And they tend to be uh, more disaffected, uh, maybe less uh, satisfied with the establishment form of politics. So how do you reconcile those narratives and which one or is there another narrative that you think will be more influential in, in this year of the 2020 election? Yeah, there's so many different ways to sort of slice and dice that question. I mean, you can talk about demographics. You can talk about the map. I mean, if we start with the map, um, you know, there's different dynamics in different parts of the state. And, you know, when you talk about moderates, if, you, if you're thinking about, you know, college-educated moderates, suburban moderates, well, that's a pretty big dynamic in southeastern Wisconsin where you've got these, you know, suburbs around Milwaukee and the outer suburbs are very Republican and the inner suburbs are more Democratic. And yet, and, and there are voters in those, in, even in the Republican suburban counties that, um, that fell away from the Republican Party uh, in 2016 and 2018. So that's an important part of the dynamic. Um, I think, you know, it's clear that I think that Joe Biden, um, you know, would probably perform better than Bernie Sanders when it came to, you know, those, you know, those center to center right suburbanites who may vote more often than not for the Republican Party, but have real qualms about Donald Trump. Um, you could see Joe Biden being the kind of Democrat who could make some inroads into that vote. Um, so that's one dynamic. Um, and then when you talk about you know what you describe as the sort of more disaffected voters in other parts of the state, including Western Wisconsin. Um, different dynamic and, and a little bit more unpredictable. And, and I, what makes it even more complicated is that if you look at these, if you look at, at the communities that switched from Obama to Trump, and I'm not talking just about the counties, but about, you know, the 500 plus cities, towns, and villages that voted for Obama and then voted for Trump, 
I think there's different things going on in these communities. They're not all doing the same thing and headed in the same direction. And I think in some of these communities, they were places that are migrating to the Republican Party for some of the reasons we've talked about. And 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 the swing was especially big in 2016 because even though they were moving in a Republican direction, you know, Obama, you know, had some appeal. Mitt Romney didn't. And so Obama was probably under overperforming in some of those places in 2012. And then suddenly Trump comes along and, and you have the unpopular unpopularity of Hillary Clinton and you get a big swing to to um, Donald Trump. And again, some of these places are really on a Republican trajectory. Other places, other communities in this same category have just more of a history of swinging back and forth. They have a little bit more of a Democratic history, but they also have a history of kind of voting against the party in power, and they have a history of big swings. And so I think we're going to see in 2020, I believe we're going to see some of these Obama-Trump communities, um, you're going to see Trump do even better than he did mm-hmm. in 2016. But then you're going to see others uh, where they bounce back and swing back to the Democrats. And I don't know how that nets out, but it's, um, it's part of the kind of mosaic of the race, and it's, and it's part of the unpredictability of the race. Yeah, yeah. That's my prediction as well, is that some of those Obama-Trump communities, especially in southwestern Wisconsin, will continue to consolidate around Trump. But then on the flip side, like you mentioned, you have this dynamic in suburban southeastern Wisconsin where you have one of the phrases I've heard so much from Republican suburbanites uh, in suburban Wisconsin is they held their nose and voted for Trump. Um, Some of them perhaps uh, will break off and support Biden, assuming Biden's the the nominee. Some of them either didn't vote for president or voted for a third party candidate. Um, right. Right. And and what are they going to do? I mean, so those are the people that are really on the cusp and and that are really conflicted. Um, yeah. So that's another X factor. But I do think some of the Obama Trump communities are going to swing back to the Democrats. We saw that in the midterms. Um, but again, we're going to see a very mixed bag, um, particularly in western Wisconsin. And so that's that's another X factor. Right, right. And you mentioned, yeah, the unaffiliated voters. And I think Wisconsin has, uh, my guess is, a above average number of independent voters uh, in the country. Is that, is that your sense as well, Craig? Well, it kind of has had historically, but on the other hand, we're so polarized now, and we've been so polarized. We were so polarized over Governor Walker, and we're very polarized over President Trump uh, that, you know, and we've seen, obviously, we had seen a big decline in ticket splitting um, from 2010 to, you know, through the, through certainly the 2014 election, uh, maybe a little bit more in 2016 because of these weird dynamics we've been talking about, where you had more, you know, voters that were con- that didn't like either candidate and were conflicted about Donald Trump. So, um, so yeah, I think we do have. Again, I think this varies from region to region. I think one of the reasons, you know, Western Wisconsin has been so swingy, and this is sort of by definition, people are less married to either political party. Whereas, you know, you look at at you know the blue areas of of Milwaukee and the red areas around Milwaukee, and they traditionally have been more partisan, and certainly the area around Madison very partisan in a democratic direction, so parts mm-hmm. of the state are kind of locked in and more predictable in their voting behavior than other parts of the state right right now, speaking of polarization, one of the you kind of just funny moments that we live in right now is 
I think my guess is that there's no state that has two U.S. senators as ideologically disparate as Tammy Baldwin and Ron Johnson representing them at the same time. And in some ways, that's a manifestation of this larger polarization story that we've had uh, in the state. And as I mentioned at the beginning, your reporting on polarization has been extraordinary. And, you know, both in the greater Milwaukee area, you have that racial and political segregation happening, and then also statewide. And I saw a study from the National Conference of State Legislators that ranked Wisconsin as the top or sometimes in the top three most polarized state legislatures. So there's a long history behind this. But in, you know, if you can kind of summarize it, Craig, why has Wisconsin become this almost symbol of polarization, like the, the ground zero of polarization uh, in our country? So I think um, there's a couple things going on. I mean, one is, you know, because it's, these elections are often decided on a knife's edge, um, you know, it doesn't take much to swing um, from uh, one party to the other. And given the makeup of both parties, that, that often means swinging from, you know, a very conservative to a very liberal candidate or vice versa. And so you get this sort of whiplash effect, um, you know, where, um, you know, Ron Johnson is winning his Senate race in 2010 and 2016, and Tammy Baldwin is winning her Senate race in 2012 and 2018. And, and they are, you know, if you look at the kind of metrics that political scientists use to measure this, they are pretty much farther apart than any other pair of senators uh, in the country. Um, so, you know, that's part of it. When I, when I did that polarization project, I mean, one of the things that struck me was the relationship between, you know, how engaged and aware and interested and, and uh, people were. And one way to measure that is turnout. Wisconsin's a, a high engagement, high turnout state. Uh, and the relationship between that and polarization, I mean, there is a relationship. I mean, people, the, the, Polarization kind of feeds the participation, and then the engagement of participation feeds the polarization because um, it raises the temperature politically in a state, and there's kind of this kind of competition that builds and this sense of rivalry and conflict, and people that are more engaged in politics tend to be more partisan and more and, and have stronger feelings. Um, and so there's a lot of chicken and egg stuff going on there, but uh, I sort of came to the conclusion that one of the ingredients of this sort of deep polarization in Wisconsin, and particularly southeastern Wisconsin, was our high level of engagement in politics. And now, that's like, in civic terms, we all applaud that because it's a good thing, right, that people participate. But there's this sort of, it is sort of a double-edged sword uh, in that it can produce, I mean, the more you care, you know, the more potential you have for people on both sides to become kind of embittered and, um, and engage in, in pretty sharp, uh, you know, political conflict. Right, right. Now, as we look ahead to 2022, Ron Johnson uh, will be back on the ballot. And he has spoken before about self-term limiting himself, but now it seems like he's been hedging a bit more in his recent statements. And so what's your sense of where Ron Johnson goes from here, and do you think it hinges a lot on the 2020 results or other factors? Well, I think a lot hinges on 2020 for a variety of reasons, not only in terms of what his, the decision he may make about whether to run again. Uh, I mean, he has, hasn't even ruled out running for governor, 
Um, he could run for the Senate again, even though he originally said he would only serve two terms. Um, so, you know, there's no way that can't influence his thinking. Um, the other way it matters is that, you know, when you're running for the U.S. Senate, it really helps to be in the out party, uh, which right. means you're not the party of the White House. And, you know, Ron Johnson has had the good fortune in 2010 and 2016 of running when there was a Democrat in the White House, Barack Obama. That helped him, no doubt, because, you, it's, you know, the out party is generally more mobilized and more motivated to vote. And some of these swings we've seen in Wisconsin, I mean, basically, when you look at these gubernatorial elections we've been had, we've had, I mean, the last umpteen gubernatorial elections have been won by the party that's not in the White House. I mean, that tells you something. Um, even yep. though we're talking about an, uh, an office for governor, which is supposed to be distinct from what's going on in Washington, it changes the election dynamic and it and it shapes the electorate. And so, you know, and Tammy Baldwin, too, I mean, she did win in 2012 uh, when there was a Democrat in the White House, but it was also the year in which Obama was winning re-election, so it turned out to be a favorable climate for her. But then she, you know, one reason why she did as well as she did, she ran a great campaign, but it certainly didn't hurt her that there was a Republican in the White House. And so, um, so it, you know, if you're an incumbent and you're, you're in the out party, it's almost impossible to lose. Yep. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, as, as we move to close here, I have one more question for you, Craig, which is you, you hear a lot about these narratives of Wisconsin and its importance in the country. And we've talked about some of the important trends here. What do you think is the most important trend as you look ahead over the next, not just two, four years, uh, but really over the next five to 10 years, the most important trends going on in Wisconsin politics that is underreported that you think that people either in Wisconsin or outside of Wisconsin hasn't, hasn't fully um, grasped yet. Well, a couple, I don't know if they're underreported or not, but a couple things that come to mind, I mean, certainly the demographic change in the state. Now we're changing um, more slowly than a lot of other places. Um, and we talked about the, the um, distinct demographics of Wisconsin being sort of white non-college, um, but that's gradually changing too. I mean, it, it you know the percentage of people that have college degrees is going up. The percentage of non-white voters is going up. Um, what's the fastest-growing part of the state? It's Dane County and it's Madison, which is a very democratic area. So that you know that has actually offset some of the um, some of the shift among. A non-college white voters around the rest of the state toward the Republican Party that has been partially offset by the growth of Dane County, which is, which is the one part of the state that's drawing people from outside the state, and it's easily the fastest-growing part of the state. So, that's one factor that, that influences all of this. Um, you know, one way I think about this is, you know, one of the things that's been very distinctive about Wisconsin for a long time is that you have um, certain you have certain groups of voters that have been like, you know, kind of voting against the grain of of the national pattern demographically. And just to give you right. two examples, I mean, those suburban counties outside Milwaukee have been more Republican than you would expect from their demographics, which is, you know, tends to be relative to the rest of the state, higher income and higher education. And a lot of suburban counties outside, you know, metropolitan, outside cities, significant cities, uh, especially in the northern half of the United States, have been moving in a blue direction. Now, there are some, commu- mm-hmm. there are some, there are some communities on the periphery of Wisconsin that are moving in a less Republican direction for those reasons. But for a long time, 
the Republican suburbs have resisted that trend, and that's that's been a kind of a distinction uh, in Wisconsin. At the same time, those Demo- those blue-collar voters in other parts of the state have been less Republican than they are in other in other states. So that those have been sort of two kind of I guess you know these are like ingredients of Wisconsin exceptionalism. But what we saw in 2016 was both of those groups started to act more like their counterparts in other places, and they sort of stopped resisting those national trends to the same degree. And so. So you have, again, you know, blue-collar voters that had been less Republican than in other places now becoming more Republican, and suburban college-educated voters who had been more Republican than in other places now becoming less Republican. So what happens with those two patterns is going to really, you know, will affect the future politics of the state. Um, are, 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 you know, is Wisconsin going to get, you know, going to start acting more and more like the rest of the country when it comes to its political demographic patterns or not or will it will it you know will it be a different kind of place like it has been in the past and so that's that's certainly one ingredient in all this that makes sense well one prediction i have for the next five years is that wisconsin will still matter in the national conversation and people will still need you to help translate what's going on in Wisconsin to the nation. Craig, I always love talking politics with you and really appreciate you being on the show. Hey, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that was Craig Gilbert, DC Bureau Chief of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I've been your host, Stephen Olicara. Please stay safe out there and tune in next week for a new episode of Meeting in Middle America. (laughs) 